6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 13 through chapter 14, verse 11. Okay, tonight, if my notes are correct, we broke off the last time in the end of chapter 12. We had uh, chapter uh, 10 and 11 and uh, the, the brief psalm that makes up chapter 12. And so we're in Isaiah chapter 13, and probably we'll get into part of 14. Isaiah is a fun guy. He has such variety. There's the dirge of judgment one moment and then an incredible messianic glimpse the next. Chapter 13 and 14 are also embody some surprises of sorts, a very different kind. I believe that uh, I assigned as homework for those of you that were inclined to take on an assignment, the reading of three pairs of chapters which if you haven't done, let me have you annotate that now. And by the way, if you're those who are taking notes, know that the Chuck Mister Bible study, Acts 17.11, goes in the upper right-hand corner. Acts 17.11 is where Luke tells you not to believe anything Chuck Mister tells you, but to check it out for yourself, in effect. So that certainly applies tonight, because we're going to go out into some you know, pretty strange territory. Chapter 13 deals with the city of Babylon. In fact, I should say more precisely, the Babylonian Empire, not just the city, but in the context of the Babylonian Empire. And uh, this is a widely misunderstood chapter. What I would like you to do if you haven't done it, and we obviously won't cover it all tonight, those of you that are serious about your learning the Bible, I encourage you at one sitting, not in pieces, in one sitting, I'd like you to read six chapters. Take you 20 minutes probably. I'd like you to read Isaiah 13 and 14. People winced at that. I guess you have to read as fast as I talk. Huh? Yeah. Several people have complained about my speaking too slowly, but... Uh, no? Okay. Isaiah 13 and 14 are the first pair of chapters. Jeremiah 50 and 51 are the second pair of chapters. And Revelation 17 and 18 being the third pair. In other words, six chapters, but in three pairs. But read them all at one sitting, because there's something that you will gain that way that will be far more profound than my sort of summarizing it for you. What you will experience is, on the one hand, the clear perception that all six chapters are talking about the literal city of Babylon. Not Rome, exactly. The city of Babylon, the pride of the Chaldeans, a city on the, in the plain of Shinar, a literal city of Babylon. The idioms of all six chapters, it pervades all six chapters. And so we must be careful not to allegorize Babylon. And we're talking a literal Babylon. On the one hand. On the other hand, especially in the Revelation passages, there's something else going on, far more profound than just the city of Babylon, something else. And you need to savor that for yourself and come to your own inferences and conclusions. We'll talk about some of that at the end, but just to give you a prelude of what I'm, that's why I want you to read all six at one sitting. So the voice of each of those three writers, Isaiah and Jeremiah and John, will be in your ear 
so you can see the consistency of idiom. And there's many uh, issues there. But uh, we're going to jump into Isaiah 13 and part of 14 tonight. And as we do, I want to anticipate some of the key points to be on the alert for. History talks about the fall of Babylon, meaning the fall of the Babylonian Empire. The city of Babylon is going to rise to power and decline. And we have the famous fall of Babylon. The Bible talks about the destruction of Babylon, and nine out of ten commentators confuse the two. That is, think they're the same thing. For a number of reasons that will emerge from the study tonight, you'll discover that this has a lot to do with Saddam Hussein, the Persian Gulf crisis so far, and it's not over yet, and what's going to be unfolding over the next few months, few years, whatever. And I'm going to suggest to you that CNN and the other media have no idea what's going on. And you will if you understand what the Bible says about the city of Babylon. The issue is not Baghdad. It's 62 miles south. to something the commentators haven't even mentioned. And we'll see why as we go. Isaiah has been talking so far in the judgments we've read in chapters 10 and so on of the Assyrian Empire. Reigned over the earth for 700 years. Capital was Nineveh. And um, at the time that Isaiah was writing, Assyria captured the northern kingdom of Israel, the house of Israel, in contrast to Judah that Isaiah is focusing on. And the Assyrian threat terrified Judah. And so Isaiah had two burdens. On the one hand, to describe that God would be using Assyria to judge the northern kingdom, but also to give them comfort that despite the threat, that Assyria was not to conquer the southern kingdom. And we saw that very dramatically in chapter 10 and so on last time. What's strange about Isaiah focusing on the, on the destruction of Babylon, which he's about to, is that the time Isaiah's writing, Babylon hadn't even risen to a power yet. He wrote about 100 years before all that happened. The Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom on about 722 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar makes his famous rise, the Battle of Karshemish, at 606 B.C. In other words, over a hundred years later. You follow me? So it's interesting. I want you to be, uh, be sensitive to the burden of, of, of Isaiah's readers because he's talking about a, a destruction of something that hasn't grown big enough to destruct. You follow me? The time Isaiah's writing, Babylon is a, a pawn of Assyrian politics. It's a city down south, southern, lower Mesopotamia, what you and I would call southern Iraq as opposed to Nineveh, which would be up in the northern part of Iraq or Syria, depending on how you cut things. So the city of Babylon. Now, the point that I'm going to make, though, by the way, is that the language here goes far beyond that which not only Isaiah and his followers, but also modern commentators have perceived. But before we get into that, let me also talk a little bit about ancient Babylon because you and I can't help but have rather quaint ideas about what Babylon really was all about. Babylon at its peak, ancient Babylon at its peak, was a city roughly, not quite square, roughly rectangular, over 15 miles on a side. It was cut in, not quite in half by the river Euphrates. Not quite diagonally, not quite in half, but sort of a little, from slightly northwest uh, entry and exit slightly east of south. In other words, cutting through the rectangular city. It had double walls, and as the river went through the city, it also was diverted to fill a moat, 
okay? And that was a primary defense. But let's talk about this wall. Herodotus tells us it was 350 feet high at its highest points, 87 feet thick. They used to race six chariots abreast. So that's, you know, when you think of an ancient city, we often think of the ruins, the quaint ruins that we visit in the Middle East. Or Babylon was, was a, well, it was the world empire. 250 towers, some of them 100 feet higher than the wall. And, of course, had several temples, the Tower of Bel, which is Akkadian for Baal, as we know it in the Old Testament, and Marduk or Merodach, if you will, from the Old Testament. The palace of Nebuchadnezzar, they have uncovered and incidentally rebuilt. It uh, had a courtyard that's virtually 200 feet by 170 feet. That's a large courtyard by today's standards. And I know you're saying real estate was cheaper then. Okay, but... The throne room of Nebuchadnezzar, was, as they found, and since has been reconstructed, is 165 feet long and 143 feet wide. And the very room, the famous handwriting of the wall, has been built today, and Saddam Hussein, at least prior to the 100-hour war, used to use it for affairs of state. There's a major receptions there in 87 and so on. And, of course, the several key towers, the Tower of Esagelia, which is the house of him whose head is raised up, and also the Tower of Ektamani Anke, which we sometimes think is a, a vestige, if you will, of the Tower of Babel of Genesis 11, the home of the foundation of the heaven and the earth. And you know the story. The, the thing you should also do, and I won't get into tonight in the interest of time, is to understand Babylon's origin. Genesis 10, the first world dictator, who I believe scholars believe was a black man, by the way, in deference to our guest. Nimrod, first world dictator, founded several cities, and of course Babylon being one of them, or Babel. And the Tower of Babel and the whole narrative in Genesis 11 starts a history of a city who spiritually symbolizes the city of man, or if you will, the city of Satan. And while Babylon has its ups and downs, its spiritual role is unchanged. It is the city of man. And you can talk, there's another city that emerges in Genesis 14. Very early, just a hint, but it starts there, a city called Jerusalem. Melchizedek is the first place, uh, first one that appears there. The city of Jerusalem emerges in the scripture in early Genesis. And the story in the entire Bible can be viewed as a tale of two cities. The city of man, Babylon, and the city of God, Jerusalem. Now don't misunderstand. Both cities have their ups and downs. And we're not here to extol Jerusalem, other than its role in the Bible spiritually is in the city of God. And both of them start in Genesis. Both of them are climaxed in Revelation, Babylon being judged and the Jerusalem being replaced by the heavenly Jerusalem, which is a whole other study, of course. But the point is, the scripture almost uses these two cities symbolically, antithetically one to another. Well, let's jump in and let's untangle a little bit about what we know about Babylon. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, the burden of Babylon, the Masa, the burden. We still use that term today, heavy, right? You know what I mean, right? Well, that's what Isaiah is saying. This is heavy. It's the burden of Babylon. It's not extolling or exalting or raising up. It's the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. And again, this is not Amos the prophet, different Amos, different, total different spelling in the Hebrew, both first and last letters are different. So don't confuse Amos, the father of Isaiah, it has nothing to do with Amos the prophet. In fact, they're opposite in many ways. Amos was a man of the field, rural. Isaiah was a man of the court, and uh, so on. 
Verse 2, Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand, that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. We don't have to untangle that phrase very much to say that if this is God speaking, something ominous is about to happen. I have commanded my sanctified ones, whoever they are. I have called, also called my mighty ones to minister, to comfort. No. For mine anger. You know, we glibly use these words. The idea of God being angry is a little terrifying. Even them that rejoice in my highness. So something's about to spring, and it's far more than some local political uprising or downfalling or whatever. Verse 4, the noise of a multitude in the mountains as of a great people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. Wait a minute, friends. Kingdoms of nations. Already, to the extent we know something about Babylon, this doesn't quite fit. Let me pause. Somewhere in here I need to pause, and I'll, I'll just choose arbitrarily right now to talk, get to remind you a little bit of the history of Babylon. Babylon was a city-state of Assyria. Along the way, a guy emerges. His father is appointed king of uh, the city of Babylon, and uh, this young guy is the father's general. The young guy's name is Nebuchadnezzar. He and his father, incidentally, emerged from a land which is called in the ancient nomenclature, the sea lands, the marshlands of the south. If you look at a map and look at where Babylon was, what was to the south? The place you and I would call Kuwait, interestingly enough. There are several things that emerge out of Kuwait. Nebuchadnezzar and his father, who will be prominent in our tale in a moment, being one of them, or a couple of them. There's also a guy that emerged in that area from the tribe of Kedar, the second son of Ishmael by the name of Muhammad, who in the, in the 600s gave us Islam. And we'll hear a lot more about those two billion members of Islam before history plays out much further. And a third character that surfaces on the scene, not in that class, don't mis misunderstand me, but still it's interesting to notice that another guy had emerged out of the tribe of Kedar that originated in Kuwait was a guy by the name of Saddam Hussein. And so that's kind of interesting, the tale thickens, huh? Yes. Okay, so Babylon starts to rise. Nebuchadnezzar's generalship is excellent. He knocks over a few other cities. The two main powers left on his horizon at the time as he rises, this is about a century after Isaiah's writing, this is, is in the six, 606 B.C. that I'm leading up to rather than 722 B.C. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquers uh, not only the Assyrians, but also at the time, which was also rising in power, the Egyptians. And there is a very key battle in ancient history known as the Battle of Carchemish, 606 B.C., where Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho. And that battle is sort of the milestone that establishes Babylon as the dominant world empire. It rises to power. And Nebuchadnezzar not only defeats Pharaoh Necho, he also lays siege to Jerusalem, the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the prophets had been predicting and I'm not just talking about Isaiah. Primarily Jeremiah and Ezekiel had uh, told Israel, I should say Judah, the southern kingdom. Israel had long been captured. The southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah, that God was going to judge them too, just like their, their northern neighbors. The northern neighbors went into idolatry. God judged them. Judah didn't learn the lesson. 
The prophets preach. They wouldn't listen. They also are going to idolatry. God decides to judge them. The reason he judges them is also kind of interesting. Among the many violations that the, uh, Judah did not, they did not keep the law, they did not obey God. Among the things that they did not obey is they did not keep the Sabbath of the land. You and I know the Sabbath of the week, the Sabbath for man. Six days you work, the seventh you rest. That was the Sabbath week for man, the Sabbath for man. There was also a Sabbath for the land. Six years you plowed the land, the seventh year you let it lie. And they were supposed to do that. They didn't do that. They didn't do that for 490 years. And God says, you owe me 70. So you're going to go into slavery into Babylon for 70 years. And the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar starts a period of time called the servitude of the nation, where the nation Israel is enslaved to Babylon for 70 years. And by the way, they are slaved to Babylon for 70 years to the very day. Which is kind of interesting. But that's just, we're just getting warmed up here. Nebuchadnezzar finds out that his father's died, so he goes back to Babylon, not just as general, but now as king. Young guy, inherits the old court guard, and what he does at, in Jerusalem, he captures Jerusalem, but he puts in a vassal king, Jehoiakim, and um, he takes some hostages. He cherry-picks the best young men for postgraduate school to serve the Babylonian court, and that's where Daniel and his three friends are included. And I believe Ezekiel at that time was also enslaved. There was a number that he took, including the temple vessels. He puts those in his museum. Just north of his palace, there's a museum. He was accustomed to taking those artifacts of his captured peoples and displaying them in the museum, and he does that. And they'll appear in our tale in a few moments. When he gets back home, he, gets, he inherits this palace guard. He has a problem. He doesn't know if these guys can cut it or not. These old men that served his father, who are they? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream one night that really bothers him. Strange dream. So next morning, he calls all his advisors together and says, I want you guys to interpret my dream for me. And by the way, to see if you guys can cut the mustard, I want you to tell me what the dream was and what it means. Well, they don't, they don't particularly relate to that. That's not the way it works, King. You tell us your dream and we'll interpret it for you. We have people like that today that will run their meter and tell you what your dreams mean. Probably just as effective, I don't know. Anyway, so the king says, no, you don't understand my professional development program. If you don't tell me what the dream was and what it means, you're going to be all killed. He explained it to him a little more clearly. I think the actual King James says, I'll tear you limb from limb and make your houses a dunghill, or words to that effect. So they say, no man on earth can do what you're asking. And they're right, by the way. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no problem. You know, off with their head, in effect. And... Um, Daniel happens to be in that job description. So when the word comes out that that particular classification of employment has just been eliminated, very literally, Daniel says, wait a minute, time out, boss. Uh, give me an audience to the king, and we'll give him the answer he wants. Now, that's guts. I don't know how many of you have that much confidence in prayer as Daniel did, but he called his buddies together and says, hey, let's have a prayer meeting. And he and his three friends pray. And when they get the audience to the king, Daniel reveals what the prayer was and what it means. That's all in Daniel chapter 2, and I'm obviously being rather cavalier in my summary of it. But by the way, uh, we won't take the time to go into detail because it reads like a, a, a shooting script. It's incredibly, uh, the first six chapters of Daniel are the narrative of his incredible life, and the last six are various visions he had. And I commend that to your study. He was a teenager, deported, very bright, very faithful to the God of Israel. What makes Daniel chapter 2 so valuable to us, it's one of those rare places, there's only a few in the Bible, where God gives us an overview of Gentile history. Most of Bible prophecy is about 
how things impact God's chosen people, the nation Israel. You normally see the Gentile world only as it impinges on Israel. But Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 and a few other places are exceptions. Daniel chapter 2, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, lays out all of world history from Nebuchadnezzar until God sets up his own government on the earth. Fascinating chapter. Something you must, as a ser if you're serious about Bible study, you need to study that. We'll, we'll move on. Incidentally, Daniel's a teenager in chapter 2. Late in his life, Daniel himself gets directly... A series of visions in Daniel chapter 7. Very different idioms, but the same content laid out. Again, all Gentile history. And commands our attention for that reason. And of course, uh, Daniel upstages all these other advisors, so you can imagine how popular he was among those guys, right? And so they take an occasion, of course, to get Nebuchadnezzar on an ego trip. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream, of course, dealt with this big image. So they talk him into building one, all of gold. And, and you know the story of Daniel 3 and the fiery furnace. And you can read it. It's pretty straightforward. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, was saved. I believe his testimony, well, there's a chapter in the Bible written by a Gentile king. It's chapter 4 of Daniel, written by Nebuchadnezzar himself and published throughout the entire world. And it's his testimony. But be that as it may, uh, Nebuchadnezzar eventually passes away. And after a couple of other uh, episodes, the kingdom is split between two, a father and a son. The son is Belshazzar, a profligate son, who is uh, running the kingdom at a time that another world empire is on the rise to the east, the Persians. The Persians make a coalition with the Medes. And there's a whole fascinating person in history by the name of Cyrus, how he rises to power by really shrewd effectiveness. And he has a general by the name of Ugaburu that is his, his shrewd uh, maneuverer. And uh, they are the threat to Babylon from the east. They knock off a few of the peripheral cities, which doesn't look that serious to Belshazzar, the, the, king, the then king of Babylon, but it does give them control of the canal system in Babylon, which was a major national asset. And while the Persians are a threat, Belshazzar is not only not preparing in his arrogance, he chooses to throw a party rather than get to military readiness. He should be sounding general quarters. Instead, he has a party. And he throws the very famous party that uh, uh, becomes a major, major event in world history. Part of the tone of the party was to show arrogance uh, of all kinds, but especially the God of Israel. And he sends his messengers next door to the museum to get the temple vessels. And he uses the temple vessels in the party as a, a gesture of desecration. Now, what, meanwhile, what was going on outside the city is Ugaburu had sent one of his divisions upriver. And at a pre-appointed time, they diverted the Euphrates River into the canal system they controlled. And that caused the water levels of the, the river uh, you know, that supplied the motor on Babylon to drop. And the other divisions at the pre-appointed time went in under the gates and took over the city. One of the most incredible scenes in history, of course, is the famous scene during Belshazzar's party. Because while they're taking the temple vessels and having a big field day, you can just... I don't know how Cecil B. DeMille missed this for a movie. It'd be great. A hand, the fingers of a man's hand, started writing on the wall and wrote some cryptic letters. And uh, that tended to put a kind of a gloom on the party, as you can imagine. And I love the King James in that place. It says, Belshazzar's knees smote one against the other. <laughs> In any case, it shook him up, and uh, his advisors, the experts, came out, and they could not read the writing. 
And the queen, apparently the wife of uh, Nebuchadnezzar was still alive in those days, and she called his attention to the fact that there was a guy in Nebuchadnezzar's reign that had a gift for this sort of thing. And so they called Daniel out of retirement. Daniel comes in. They offer him all kinds of rich rewards. He says, keep yours, and gives a little eulogy, saying, insulting the king and explaining how the predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, now there was a king. And he goes up through a little bit of that, which must have been very popular. But, but then he goes on to interpret the letters. And according to the Talmud, the reason he was able to interpret is that he read them vertically and backwards. But the net of it was, the, the net of that is that uh, he says that your kingdom is weighed and wandering, your number is up, and uh, this night is the, the kingdom delivered to the Persians. And I won't get through all the details or some puns and other things, but it's amazing, by the way, how many expressions in our language today come from that evening. Handwriting on the wall, have you heard that expression? A lot of people use it, never heard, don't know where it comes from. Your number is up, right? And so forth. And all those things, there's, a, there's about eight of them that come out of the Daniel chapter 5. But without getting into all that right now, of course, that night the Persians take over. But here is a key point that everybody misses, and it's vital to you and I. The Persians took over Babylon without a battle. If you visit the London Museum and see the Steel of Cyrus, which is a famous artifact, Cyrus himself on it by hand boasts that he captured the world at Babylon without a battle. There was no destruction of Babylon. It was a fall. It took three days for most of the residents to know that the city had been taken over by the Persians. They did not interrupt the temple services, the various things. The Persians took over. They owned the place. It's a mix of trying to give you a little bit of history so you can interpret chapter 13, and yet on the other hand, not spend too much time recapping a lot of history. But uh, a couple other points I'd like to make that I think are interesting. Uh, Ugebru, of course, takes over Babylon. It's, uh, I think, 14 days later that Cyrus, the big boss, comes in and makes his appearance, takes over the city. And interestingly enough, we understand from the ancient records that Cyrus was presented the scroll of Isaiah in chapter 44 and 45. We'll get into this all in detail when we get to that part there. But the main point is in that portion of Scripture, there is a letter written to Cyrus by name. God says, because I'm calling you by name, even though you don't know who I am, you will thus know that I'm the God of Israel. And the scroll was written 150 years earlier. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.